Well, just a few words about myself, and then we'll pray. My name is Brad Clausen. Uh, I am an elder here at Grace Community Church and have the joy of leading our men's ministry on Wednesday nights and then also pastoring a fellowship group called Commissioned, and uh, we meet on Sunday mornings. And I also teach Bible exposition in the Master's Seminary, have the joy of overseeing the THM program, and just a plug for that, if any of you are interested in advanced uh, studies here at the Master's Seminary, we will have a lunch tomorrow uh, during the lunchtime in the seminary building in the basement. So if any of you are interested in pursuing uh, education beyond the MDiv, I'd love to talk to you. We've got some exciting opportunities here at the Master's Seminary. Married, have uh, four children. They're, they're pretty much all grown. One of them is married already, and uh, my wife is serving here. We've been married 27 years, and uh, the Lord just continues to pile his goodness upon us and grace upon grace. So thankful to him and thankful to have this opportunity to open the word of God to you on such an important topic uh, this evening well, let's, or this morning. Let's look to the Lord. It's been a long day already. Uh, let's look to the Lord and ask for his strength as we uh, get into this topic and start the second half of our day. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be here this morning. What a blessing it is to be together with your people uh, to be together with this band of brothers, these men who are so committed to ministry. We thank you for what you have put in their hearts, for what you have done in their lives, what you are doing through them. And as we approach this topic of the mind this afternoon, we do pray that your, your blessing would be upon us, that you would give us understanding, that you would open our minds to receive your word, to be transformed by it, and then to think it and have that thinking impact everything else that we do. We're so thankful for the mind of Christ that we have on the pages of your word that reveals to us your knowledge. And so we ask that your spirit would take that on this topic, press it deep, change us, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, the topic of the seminar is the war within, how to win the battle for your mind. Obviously, a very important topic as it relates to what we face today in the culture being faced with so much of an onslaught, perhaps unlike we faced here in this part of the world uh, in times as, as long as we can, uh, we can think. And as we talk about the mind, we have to begin by giving somewhat of a definition of the mind and and obviously, it's a very difficult concept to define. In fact, we can see that when we look at the Hebrew and Greek terminology for the mind. There's no one word, either in the Hebrew or the Greek, that will describe all that the mind is and what the mind does. We find numerous words in both languages, in both the Old and New Testaments. But looking at those words, we can come up with a a basic understanding of what the mind is not and what the mind is. And we'll begin with what the mind is not. When we think of the mind, it's important not to equate it with the brain, not to equate it with the neurochemical functions of the, the brain. It's not appropriate to equate the, the mind with one's IQ. The mind is something very, very difficult, in fact, for evolutionists to try to define and to describe and they pretty much limit it to these chemical processes and these electrical impulses. They really don't have a category for it beyond that. We know when we study the, the scriptures that there is much more to the mind than those, those neuro, neurochemical reactions and impulses that take place. What we do see when we study the scriptures and look at what the mind is, is this. We, we see it as the place, the seat of of mental acts. It is rationality. It is the place where learning takes place, remembering, contemplating, but that's not all that the mind is. The mind is also the, the term that is used by the scripture writers to describe disposition, the place where patterns of judgments form. It's the seat of reasoning, where the mood is located, where the temperament arises from. The mind is also consciousness. The mind is that place where we have a perception of self and we have a perception of our surroundings, the world. We have a perception of, of God. 
And also when we read the scriptures and study them as it relates to the mind, we see that the mind is inherently religious. Of course, the mind of the unbeliever is darkened. The mind of the unbeliever, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, is calloused. It is set, it is bent against God. But for the believer, it has been regenerated and made new to think thoughts after God. It is Therefore, for the believer, that religious domain, the domain of beliefs, the domain of convictions and affections, it's ultimately the seat of worship. We don't worship with emotions. We worship in the mind. Emotions just follow where the mind goes, but it is the mind that is the seat of worship, and therefore, that which is most important for us as we think about the Christian life and developing our walk with Christ. Now, just to give you an idea of how important the mind is, I've been preaching through Titus recently, and there's a very interesting theme in Titus that you see Paul develop as he addresses Titus, who is ministering there on that Mediterranean island, just to the south of the, Pel- uh, uh, the, south of the Peloponnese of Greece, Uh, There, that long island in the Mediterranean, where Paul and Titus had spent a a limited amount of time before Paul had to leave and go on further in his ministry travels. And when Paul writes to Titus, he's writing to Titus to set in place what remains in those young churches. And as he does that, it is important to understand what Paul focuses on in terms of the instruction that Titus is to give that church. And it really focuses on on one verb in particular and one set of words, the cognate words that surround that verb. It's It's the verb sophroneo, sophroneo, which comes from two Greek words, sos, meaning healthy or sound, and phrain, referring to thinking. And over and over again, as Paul instructs this this uh, young protege, Titus, as he is to then turn around and instruct the new converts there in or on the island of Crete, you have this emphasis on sound thinking. And it was very important because, as Paul himself said to Titus, that the Cretans were those who are liars. They were evil beasts and lazy gluttons. This was a decadent culture. And yet there were those whom the Lord saved from that culture And so as Titus is left there to minister to those new believers, he is instructed by Paul to focus on the mind. And you see this term come through over and over again. Paul uses it about 10 times, this verb, sophroneo, and its cognates, and five of those are in Titus. So half of all of Paul's usage of this term are found in Titus. And it's important to see how this is traced out. First of all, Paul says, in 1 verse 8, that the candidates for eldership had to be sensible. And that's the verb that is, or the adjective used there, is from that that, uh, root sos and frame. They had to be sound in thinking. He then goes on in chapter 2 to refer to the older men, and he said they must be sensible, same adjective that is used there was used in 1 verse 8, He says the older women are to encourage the younger women. It's translated as encourage in our Bibles in the NASB, but it's sophroneo, which has the idea of instruction through rationality. The older women are to be aiming at the minds of the younger women to teach them, to instruct them how to love their husbands, love their their children, and so on and so forth. Those younger women are to be instructed to be sensible, sound in mind, And then we get to the climax in chapter 12, where Paul explains where this all comes from and why it's possible. And he says in chapter 2, verse 12, that the grace of God has appeared, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly. The grace of God has appeared, and it has appeared in order to instruct us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and, and to live sound of thinking. This is a cardinal 
Christian virtue, the right use, the sound, healthy use of the mind. One commentator, in summarizing this particular term and its importance, finds it this way. I, Howard Marshall, says this. This term, sophroneo, means this. It is a suitable restraint in every respect, a self-control which leads to behavior appropriate to the situation and is to be seen as a positive virtue as the Christian faces the realities of life in the world. It depicts, and this is really important now, he says it depicts a balanced demeanor characterized by self-control, prudence, and good judgment. It stands for one of the marks of the genuine Christian life. This is what is to mark Christians. This is what Paul says to Titus is to characterize those new converts coming out of that very decadent, sinful culture. They are to be sound of thinking. In response to this, Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Practice of Godliness, as he, as he focuses on this quality of, of being sound of mind, writes this, and I felt it is, it's a good summary of what Paul was getting at there in, in uh, his letter to Titus. Jerry Bridges says this, quote, Our minds are mental greenhouses where unlawful thoughts once planted are nurtured and watered before being transplanted into the real world of unlawful actions. These actions are savored in the mind long before they are enjoyed in reality. The thought life, then, is our first line of defense in the battle of self-control. That was exactly what the problem was there in Crete. They, those, those new believers came from a, a lifestyle where there was no control. It was utter narcissism and hedonism. And now the grace of God had appeared to them, had been proclaimed by Paul and Titus. They were saved by that grace of God. But that grace of God did not leave them there, but instead instructed them that they had to deny that hedonism and instead put on this soundness of mind. Now, that is what the Christian life is all about. What defines Christianity, when you look from the outside, is this soundness of mind. But Paul and Titus doesn't go into descriptions about how this soundness of mind is is to be cultivated. He does that elsewhere. In fact, that's where we want to spend most of our time this afternoon we want to spend our time in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 6, where Paul gives us a paradigm for developing soundness of mind, a paradigm for responding to error where, wherever it may arise, whether from the outside or from within. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, and let's look at Paul's paradigm for winning the battle in the mind. Verses 3 to 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Now, before we get into this, it's important to look at the context. Now, we know that Paul had multiple reasons for writing the Corinthians. If we look at chapters 1 through 7 of 2 Corinthians, we see that he writes this letter in in those chapters in order to, to express his relief that the Corinthians had finally repented. Titus, again, coming back to Titus, had brought him a report. They had met in Macedonia, and Titus had informed Paul of the repentance of the Corinthians. And so Paul spends the large part of his letter dealing with that issue. But a second major reason why Paul writes 
this second letter to the Corinthians is that he, he writes to confront those in the church who had fallen under the influence of false apostles, false apostles. And Paul begins this section in responding to this influence and and dealing with these false apostles. He begins it in chapter 10, and it's important to note the first two verses here, which lead up to our text, because it gives us the context for what Paul was dealing with. He writes this in, in verses 1 and 2. He says, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. Now, Paul here summarizes two important claims that the false apostles were making against Paul. First of all, they accused Paul of being duplicitous, of being inconsistent, that he was fearless from afar, but he was fragile in person. You see that in verse 1. He, he quotes them, so to speak. He paraphrases that claim when he writes this, I who am meek when face to face, but bold to you when absent. The, the false apostles were, were making hay over this, that Paul seems to have this duplicitous nature. He, he sounds like a lion from afar, but when you really get to know him, he's actually quite weak. And then secondly, they had accused Paul of worldliness. In the very last sentence here, in the very, in the very last clause, he, he again cites them as making this claim that they regarded Paul and his companions, his apostolic, his apostolic comrades. He, he, he claims that they said that they, the apostolic team, walked according to the flesh. In other words, that Paul and his ministry companions employed unspiritual methods, that they were unsophisticated in their means, that they're really worldly. They lacked the profundity that is to accompany spiritual things. That was the claim. So these false apostles were infecting and creating chaos in the Corinthian church, and Paul now writes to respond to those. And in the verses that we have, that we read already, verses 3 to 6, we see Paul's summary response to these claims. How does Paul deal with these claims? In the original, it's actually one sentence that goes from the beginning of verse 3 to the end of verse 6. The the main part of the sentence is found in verses 3 and 4, and then a series of of participial phrases, three of them, are found in verses 5 and 6. But this response that Paul gives provides a wonderful paradigm for us for how we are to respond to error, how we are to respond to error, whether that, again, whether that error arises from without or whether it arises from within, from our own flesh. And we're going to look at the text and organize our thoughts around these two emphases that Paul makes. First of all, in verses 3 to 4, the, the, real, the main part of this sentence, Paul instructs us to choose the right weaponry choose the right weaponry, and then in verses 5 and 6, to employ the correct strategy. If we are to win the battle within, the battle for our own minds, we must make sure that we engage in this battle with the right weaponry, and then secondly, that we use that weaponry the right way. To emphasize the importance of this, the intensity of this battle, important to note that Paul goes to one of his favorite metaphors here, the metaphor of warfare. And we're going to see this. And this these, these verses are filled with military imagery and some of Paul's most graphic military imagery. He talks about waging war in verse 3. He talks about weapons and fortresses in verse 4. He talks about destruction in verses 4 and 5. He talks about lofty things raised up, that is, ramparts in verse 5. He talks about taking captive in verse 5. He talks about punishing resistance in verse 6. Over and over again, he's using the picture of military warfare. In fact, as we're going to see in verses 5 and 6, he uses a particular process in waging battle. 
And we'll get to that in that second part, the strategy that Paul advances. But Paul takes this metaphor to, to emphasize to the Corinthians and to us as well that this is no little sideshow. This is not something that is unimportant in the big scheme of things. Instead, much to the contrary, this really is where the Christian life is at. It is a battle, and all of us know this implicitly. We know that in following Christ, in living out the grace that God has given to us, this is where it all comes down to, to the, where the rubber meets the road. It's in the mind, and it's in, the, it's in this battle for the truth in terms of our own thinking and living. Let's look at the first emphasis that Paul makes in verses 3 and 4. He says, choose the right weaponry. He begins with these words in verse 3. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now, what's interesting to note, when you look at verse 2, the, the false apostles had claimed that Paul walked according to the flesh. And that preposition, according to, emphasizes means. And, and the false apostles claimed that, that Paul was, was employing the means and the methods of the flesh. But what is interesting to note here in the very beginning of verse 3, as he begins his response, is that he switches prepositions. Notice a slight change here. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Paul, by using the preposition in, recognizes inherent weakness. And this is very important for us. We, we need to recognize this. If we don't, we won't engage in the battle. If we think we are strong, uh, we will be left without the proper defenses. If, if we think we have what it takes and just bring it on, I'm, I'm going to be okay through this, I, I, I have no weaknesses, we're going to fail in this, Paul himself recognized that he had inherent weakness. He says, we walk in the flesh, not according to the means of the flesh, but the reality of it is we walk in the flesh. And, and, and that is a reference to what Paul says earlier on in this epistle when he admits that he is an earthen vessel. Astronikos is the term that he uses there to refer to clay. He is a clay vessel. And those clay vessels of ancient times broke really, really easily. They were the weak vessels. They were the vessels that were there for everyday use and could be easily discarded without great expense. Paul admits and has no problem in admitting inherent weakness. But even though he recognizes his weakness. He realizes that his promotion and his defense of the truth were not at all weak. He says, while we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The verb there for war is the verb stratuo, from which we get strategy. It's a term that was often used to, to describe military conflicts. It, it was used to describe the, the planning of, of being engaged in conflict and how to wage battle, how to fight. And Paul uses that here to explain what he is engaged in as he walks in his weakness. We walk in the flesh, but we do not war according to the flesh. He acknowledges the fact that we do war. He acknowledges the fact that he is not some bystander He's not someone who's passive. He is engaged. He is at battle. He is engaged in the conflict. And he says, he does not do it according to the flesh because he recognizes success in any battle will depend on the weapons chosen. And the weapons he's chosen are those that have nothing to do with the flesh. They're not according to the world's arsenal, not according to the natural means and methods of waging battle. He goes on to say this then in verse 4, to explain what those non-fleshly weapons are. He says, for the weapons are, are of our warfare are not of the flesh. The weapons that he's referring to here are the instruments. 
he's referring to those, those weapons, that armor that would be needed specifically for military combat. The weapons, he says, are not of the flesh. They don't originate in human ingenuity. They're not part of the wise things of this world. They have nothing to do with human pride and self-promotion, nothing to do with cleverness and self-sufficiency. They are not of the flesh. Instead, he says they are divinely powerful. Literally, they are powerful to God, emphasizing the fact that they have been approved by God and empowered by God. That's the kind of weaponry that Paul says he possesses. And he says this weaponry is so powerful that it leads to the destruction of of fortresses. Now, for the Corinthians, this idea of fortresses would have been very easily understood. The the term for fortress refers to a, a, a reinforced, impenetrable military installation. And if any of you have ever been to Corinth or have seen pictures the, the city of ancient Corinth was located at the foot of an Acropolis, one of the most impressive Acropolises in the, in the land of Greece. And up at the top of that Acropolis was what it was known as the Acrocorinth. And at the top there, in that Acrocorinth, was the fortified city. And the practice was, if there was any approaching army, the residents of the city down below, who lived at the foot of that Acropolis, who lived and had all of their dealings there and in the Agora and the temples down there, they would all go up the the mountain, up the Acropolis, and, and, and then live in that very fortified and very impenetrable fortress located at the top. But Paul says in his battle with the truth that the weaponry that he has that is powerful to God the weaponry that has been empowered by God is so effective that it can penetrate and destroy such fortresses. That is an amazing claim. These weapons that are not of the flesh are effective. And that's very important for us to understand because so often today in in dealing with some of the sin problems, the enslavements, you will hear often those who have been entangled in in patterns of sin express that that desperation or, or even that despair that there's nothing that can break the fortress. There is nothing that can change the mind, that can change the behavior. We hear it often, and it's it, that, that kind of thinking is attributed to all kinds of things. But Paul says here that the weapons he has are capable of destroying all of those errant, those sinful fortresses. Now, what were these weapons? What divinely fashioned weapons did Paul have in mind? Now, he doesn't list them right here in the text, but you, you get them from reading his writing previous to this. And, and just a few texts bring this up. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul uses military a language there too, and he says this, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the, now here's the key words, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. That's the weaponry, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. If you go into chapter 4 in particular, you, you find these weapons listed in, 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 in greater detail. There are things like the word of God, the truth, the gospel, the knowledge of the glory of God. In chapter 6, verse 7, it's the word of truth in the power of God. He says that this word of truth and power of God, these are weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. So in short... The weaponry that Paul is talking about here, the weaponry that is not of the flesh, that is not of the world, it is God's word. It is special revelation. It is the truth that has been revealed through the gospel, the truth that has been revealed through God's appointed messengers to give that grace that Paul talks about in Titus chapter 2 that appears, bringing salvation to all kinds of men and teaching to deny ungodliness, and to live sensibly. It is the 
grace of God evidenced or manifest in God's revelation, in his, in his word. And it is this and this alone that has what it takes to penetrate the otherwise impenetrable fortresses, those acrocorinths that exist in men's lives, the teaching of the word of God. One Puritan writer expressed the power of the word of God this this way. Henry Smith stated this. He said, quote, God doth not bid us to taste all sins and vanities as Solomon did to try them, for they are tried already, but that we should set the word of God always before us like a rule and believe nothing but that which it teacheth, love nothing but that which it prescribeth, hate nothing but that which it forbiddeth, do nothing but that which it commandeth, and then we try all things by the word. What Paul is doing here is he is elevating the efficacy of the word of God in confronting the most troublesome sins and errors that exist in believers' thinking, that it is not going to be by means of philosophy. It's not going to be by means of psychology. It will be by means of doctrine that comes from the word of God that these strongholds are confronted and destroyed. This is really a testimony to the sufficiency of Scripture. We can read this in Psalm 19, verses 7 to 9 where David himself testifies to the, to the efficacy of God's word. It does exactly this. It destroys fortresses. David says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. That is the summary of the weaponry right there. The law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear, the judgments. Those are the weapons we must bring into this battle. If we do not, we will not penetrate the strongholds. Philip Hughes, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, draws an an implication from this as an admonishment against the contemporary church When he writes this about these words in 2 Corinthians 10, he says, this constitutes an admonition to the church and particularly to her leaders. For the temptation is ever present to meet the challenge of the world, which is under the sway of the evil one. With the carnal weapons of this world, with human wisdom and philosophy, with the attractions of secular entertainment with the display of massive organization. Not only do such weapons fail to make an impression on the strongholds of Satan, but a secularized church is a church which, having adopted the standard of the world, has ceased to fight and is herself overshadowed by the powers of darkness." Well, that's the weaponry that we must take. We must take into this battle the word of God. We must refuse to to take into this conflict the things of this world, the weapons of the flesh. Well, now, how do we use those weapons? How do we use the word of God in tearing down and destroying the fortresses of error and sin? Paul gets into that then in the next two verses, verses Five and six. Not only what must we choose the correct weaponry, we must employ the correct strategy. Verses five and six. Now it's important to note, as I said, verses five and six. Even though in our Bibles it's a different sentence, it really is a continuation of the sentence that began in verse three, and it's made up of of three participles that give us a three-stage process. It's, a, it's a, a process that the Corinthians would have understood very well because it follows what the, what, what the ancient armies would do in, in engaging in conflict 
and what they would do when they would win the battle. And this three-stage process follows this line. First of all, it involves destruction. It involves destruction. In particular, destroying speculations. We're going to see that in the beginning of verse 5. Secondly, it involves taking captives. In particular, taking thoughts captive. And that will be in the second half of verse 5. And then it involves punishment, particularly punishing the resistance. And when we walk through this process to see how Paul dealt with the error of these false apostles and that error that was spreading in the Corinthian church, again, this serves as a paradigm for us for how we ought to confront error and sinful patterns of thinking in our own lives as we go through this. I think you're going to see how helpful this process is. First of all, we must destroy speculations, destroy speculations. Notice verse 5, Paul says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. The, the verb that's used there is a participle for destroying, has the idea of to destroy by tearing down. It, it has the idea of to demolish. It, it, it was a verb that was used particularly in siege warfare when the armies would bring up their battering rams against these fortresses and begin to hammer away at the, at the entry points, at the weak places in the walls, and would seek to destroy all of those ramparts. That was critical to victory. You could not take a city unless you destroyed its walls. And if you were to have victory, you would not let that city remain with its walls standing. Paul uses that as an analogy for what we do with error. We must destroy. And what must we destroy? Notice what he says here. He he says we must destroy two things. First of all, he says we must destroy speculations, legismas. It's, It's the word from which we get logic. It's a word that emphasizes logical reasoning. You could equate this to syllogisms, right? A syllogism is when you have a a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion, and it's a way of reaching a conclusion. It's a form of argumentation, and Paul says we must destroy. We are destroying legismos. We are destroying this line of, of reasoning. But not only that, he says we are destroying every lofty thing, every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And that too has the picture of every rampart, every tower, every high point that would be in a city had to be demolished so it was unusable by the enemy. And Paul says, when it comes to error, we must do the same thing. What he's calling for here is a direct and unrelenting assault against any rebellious, any independent idea or pattern of thinking. So so the pattern of thinking is the logismas, the speculations, and the ideas, every lofty thing. And it's called lofty because not only in that mental picture has that been raised up as a rampart, but it's lofty because it emphasizes arrogance. It emphasizes ideas thinking that are at best independent from God and his revelation, or at worst, directly rebellious. Anything, Paul says, any notion that raises itself up against the knowledge of God, there we have that idea again, the revelation of God, that which God has revealed, anything that raises itself up against that, anything, notice the absolute language, every lofty thing, must be destroyed if it is independent and rebellious against the knowledge of God. Paul essentially says, tear down these walls. If there is to be true liberty in Christ, if there is to be true freedom, if there is to be liberation from sinful patterns, the walls must come down. D.A. Carson summarizes it this way. He says, this is why every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God is so desperately serious and deeply tied to the fountainhead of sin in our lives. 
we cannot know God from a position of arrogance and cynicism. For not only are such attitudes fundamentally antithetical to our creaturely dependence, they are also foundationally opposed to the only knowledge of God open to poor sinners, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. We must destroy speculations. Secondly, we must take thoughts captive. Second half of verse 5, Paul says this, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And you can follow the the pattern, the picture here that, that as Paul progresses in the metaphor, once the walls are destroyed, what does the What does the army do? It rushes into the city and takes captive any resident that remains. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here, that that we must take captive these thoughts. We must cause these thoughts to be as prisoners of war. And the idea here is forced submission. The term that Paul uses is the term thought. It, it, it refers to that which someone has in mind. And, and, and we get that even from the English word thought. You could think of it also as, as notion, any kind of notion, any kind of idea, even in its embryonic stage, we must take it captive. And notice to whom this captivity is offered. It, it is to Christ. Paul says that it is taken captive, these thoughts are taken captive to the obedience of Christ. The most rudimentary notions that that we have in our minds, and it's not just religious ones, but all of our thoughts must be made to show compliance to the lordship of Christ. That's what this is about. Paul is identifying here that root problem, and it is the the disobedience of, of our thoughts that arise from the flesh, disobedience to the lordship of Christ, refusal to bend the knee, refusal to show loyalty and compliance to Jesus Christ and his lordship over every aspect of our being. John Calvin said this, hence, In light of this, he said, hence, we must set out with this, that he who is wise must become a fool. That is, we must give up our own understanding and renounce the wisdom of the flesh, and thus we may present our minds to Christ empty that he may fill them. And that's so often the challenge that we face in the Christian life, whether you're new in Christ or whether you've been walking with Christ for a decade or more, the flesh keeps on, those, keeps on proposing those thoughts that once enslaved us in our pre-regenerate life. And what Calvin says and what Paul says is that what we must recognize is these thoughts are present and the challenge is to make them subservient to Christ to leave no stone unturned, but to take every thought and make it bend the knee to the lordship of Christ. Make that thinking of yourself. Make that thinking of the world around you. Make that thinking of the relationships that you're involved in. Make that thinking of of whatever issue it may be reflect in a very evident way the reality that Christ is Lord. That leads to a, a third And final stage in this strategy, Paul says we must then punish the resistance. He says this in verse 6, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. He says we are ready. In other words, we have a heightened state of alertness. We're not sleeping on the job. We're ready, and we're ready to to punish and punish. And that verb speaks of the infliction of appropriate penalty to a wrong done. There must be a just punishment to all disobedience. And that disobedience that Paul speaks of is the exact antithesis of the obedience that is aimed at in the previous verse. If you notice at the end of verse 5, he says that the thoughts must be taken captive to the obedience of Christ and where there is disobedience, That must be 
punished. What Paul is speaking of here is a strict approach which inflicts consequences and ideas that caused the rebellion, that inflicts consequences and ideas that resisted compliance. And I think it's this third stage in particular that is so often missed. We may recognize unbiblical thoughts, thoughts that, that do not reflect the lordship of Christ. We, we may recognize them, and, and we may even to some degree seek to cast those off, but we fail in this third stage of actually bringing judgment to those thoughts. An active process whereby we inflict a righteous kind of indignation against those thoughts in our own minds that caused the rebellion in the first place. We must punish the disobedience. Now let's think of the implications that arise from Paul's instruction here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. First of all, first of four, number one, recognize that the battle against error is no small skirmish. It's no small skirmish. The battle over our minds is is the hottest place of the fight. It is a battle over truth and error, and it wages from the moment we arise in the morning to the moment that we lay our heads down on the pillow and fall asleep at night. In fact, we can even say that some who struggle even in their dreams is that that struggle is a reflection of the battle that takes place during the waking hours. It is an intense battle. And Paul's emphasis here is is such that to, to, to show the intensity and the importance, he uses some of his most graphic language to describe what has taken place. It is a battle. It is life and death. It in, and it is the kind of battle in which we can leave no prisoners. Everything in all aspects of our thinking, everything from notions to speculations, everything from ideas to thought patterns must be scrutinized. We must be on the alert and realize that we're never really in neutral territory. The battle is not over some distant ideology somewhere out there that we can avoid if we want to. But it is over the most incipient forms of thought, the the kind of anti-Christian counsels that still arise from our flesh and will arise until the moment of glory. We will all face it. We do all face it every day. You've faced it even perhaps this hour. You've faced it out there standing in line for the burgers. You face it all the time. We must recognize this is no small skirmish. Neutrality is not an option. Negligence is spiritually reckless, and appeasement to your thoughts is devastating. You must realize the battle wages, and it wages hot. Speaking of appeasement and what we see happening even on on public levels, appeasement to the dark forces of this world under the power of the evil one, there's a book called The Christian Mind by Harry Blamires. He's a, he was an Anglican theologian, a student and associate of C.S. Lewis, and he wrote a book on the Christian mind. And, and for the most part, it's, it's a good book. It, it expresses things in, in very powerful ways. We just don't agree with Blamires in, in the way, in, in what he prescribes as the solution. But in many of his assessments, he's right on. And, and back in 1963, he said this about the problem of, of accommodation and acquiescence to these dark forces. He says this regarding Christian pastors in his day. He says this, quote, they are past masters, experts at fence sitting. Indeed, many of them devoted as they are to liberal notions of broad-mindedness and toleration have rationalized their ignorance into the comforting conviction that fence-sitting 
is preeminently the posture of the charitable Christian leader. That is so well put. He's right in his assessment. We cannot be passive. This is a waging battle, and we are not called to fence-sitting or charitableness when our minds are at stake. Number two, identify the center of conflict in each battle as the lordship of Christ. This is where the battle wages the hottest. The center of conflict is the lordship of Christ. And we all know that great statement from Abraham Kuyper who said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Every single issue falls under the lordship of Christ. And if a thought or any kind of reasoning process does not harmonize with the fact that Jesus is Lord even over that thought, then that thought is error. It must be rejected as such. In response, the Christian, the Christian who's serious about this battle must strive intentionally to entertain only those thoughts which can be traced with a direct line to the lordship of Christ, that those thoughts express submission. And just think of this as it relates to even your your own personal life, those those thoughts that you express and entertain in the privacy of your your own living. How often do you think, do you ask, how often do you ask the the question, does this thought show compliance to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Just take thoughts that we can have of self-pity. How often we struggle with that, especially even as ministers, self-pity. Whoa, it's so hard. And we, we, we can become enslaved to that kind of thinking about the hardness of ministry and the number of opponents and what they're all saying and so on. Poor me. All right, let's see how that thinking expresses the lordship of Christ. How does it? It doesn't. Because if we believe in the lordship of Christ, we would see that even these circumstances come from his sovereign hand. And so we must go through our days, we must go through our hours from the moment we arise in the morning, always saying, okay, if I am going to entertain this thought, I must be able to show and think and understand how it how, how it, it expresses the lordship of Christ over that particular area of which I am thinking. That is why, by the way, issues like pronouns and sexuality and marriage and the sanctity of life can never be matters of adiaphora, matters of indifference, because Jesus is Lord over those areas, and therefore we, as the men of God, must strive to find the lordship of Christ well, how that is expressed, how that looks over those very issues. And the lordship of Christ is certainly expressed over matters of human sexuality, marriage, and the sanctity of life. We cannot be indifferent. Francis Schaeffer, who spoke much and often about these kinds of things, said this, it is not too strong to say that we are at war and there are no neutral parties in the struggle One either confesses that God is the final authority or one confesses that Caesar is Lord. There's no neutral ground. Number three, implement Paul's three-stage strategy for warfare. Think through this often and make it a part of your habit. And these three stages are as follows. We must destroy speculations. Anything that is raised up against the revelation of God We must destroy it, those ramparts, those bastions of wrong, errant thinking. We must take thoughts captive. We must take those thoughts then and make them subservient to Christ and entertain only those thoughts that bend the knee and express and embrace Christ's lordship. And then third, we must punish resistance. We must punish resistance. We must be vigilant for those subtle movements in our thinking toward insurrection. We must take the time to consider where did that thought arise and why was it allowed to progress in 
my thought life. And like I said, it is often at this third point where we fail. We don't think enough. We don't think these thoughts of why this resistance exists, where it came from, why it is wrong, and how it was allowed to spread through our minds. Paul says, you must be ready to punish resistance. Number four, equip yourself with the appropriate weaponry. And this is where Paul began in verses three and four. And in particular, verse four, we, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. They're powerful to God for the destruction of fortresses. To win the battle requires that conscious relinquishment of the world's ways and that deliberate, singular devotion to God's ways and to God's means. That's why we cannot be indifferent about the world's methods of attacking and dealing with some of the the recognized sins of, of, of life. They will not be powerful to God. Instead, we relinquish the world's ways and and embrace the only way that is powerful for the destruction of these fortresses. More than that, it requires that we know the word of God on these matters. You you know of that that saying, garbage in, garbage out. It was it's used in by by computer engineers to to express that when there's flawed input, they will there will be nonsense output. That if we take in what is garbage, we will put out what is garbage. And if you're feeding your mind constantly from the garbage pile, you can expect that your mind will entertain and express all the more garbage. Don't expect to win the battle if you input much of the world and yet you're low and lacking on the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. Instead, we must, as Paul said to the Colossians, we must let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. That when that mind is taken into our minds and that mind is taken into such a degree that it fills it, it then leaves no room for the progress of that which is opposed to it. Another Puritan, William Bridge, in his work on the sweetness and profitableness of divine meditation, that that discipline of letting the word of Christ dwell within us richly, expressed it so well when he said this, as it is a heartwarming work, so it is that which will keep your hearts and souls from sinful thoughts. When the vessel is full, you can put in no more. We must equip ourselves with the right weaponry. What does that mean? It means the mind has to be filled constantly with the Word of God. And that comes through all kinds of means. Everything, obviously, from hearing the Word of God preached to reading and studying the Word of God ourselves to hearing hymns that are filled with biblical concepts and wording and to hearing discussion of biblical themes by others who are sound in the faith. We must equip ourselves with the word of God, the right weaponry. Well, man, this is how we win the battle. And this is our calling, and not only for ourselves, but each one of you is here because you represent others. And the challenge is to equip them with this same biblical strategy for winning the war in their own lives. Be faithful to do that when you return home. And most of all, model it in your own lives for their own good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word, which is so clear and speaks directly to our great needs. And we thank you for this text in particular, which reveals the the problems that we face every day with rebellious thinking 
And it also prescribes the strategy for responding. We pray, Father, that you would give us the conviction to fill our minds with that right weaponry. You'd give us the hunger for that. And that we would long for that truth as newborn babes long for milk. That we would see that the way to fight sin starts far earlier than the temptation itself starts with the right feeding upon the truth. Give us that hunger. And then, Father, as we do confront temptation which arises, may you grant us the wisdom and the strength and the grace we need to respond to that temptation by taking thoughts captive, destroying speculations, and punishing disobedience. Lord, we, we acknowledge and testify that we cannot do this ourselves. As Paul wrote to Titus, it is the grace of God which instructs and empowers this. And so we ask for that in our own lives, asking you to do this in us for our good and ultimately for your glory. And we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.